And I would ask that you would turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 uh, through 21. And uh, uh, it's a, uh, a lesson this week that I think is important for us to pause and to really take a look at, at who we are and uh, what we're all about. Because the book of 1 John is all about the idea of assurance. God wants to give us assurance as his children. And as I think about this idea of assurance, I'm reminded of a text that I want to read to you from first, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but let me just give this as a beginning for our study. Paul says to the church at Corinth in his second letter, he says, Examine yourselves to see, the, to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Today, I want to put you in an examination. I want you to put yourself, uh, even though school is now finishing up, I want to give you a final, if you will, uh, in this series that we've had. Now, we'll be finishing this up uh, by uh, the end of June But it seems that John seems to bring all of the things that he's been teaching us throughout this series, and he asks us the question, are we really the children of the light? Are we really living in the light? And he's going to ask us a couple questions, and he's going to bring out four evidences that we are truly children of God if we pass the test, if these things are true for us. Now, he wants to assure us, and so the thing that he wants to do is he wants to give you a bona fide understanding that you can know for sure that you are a child of God. But to do so, you have to have certain evidences that are a part of your life. An old story was said, or an old adage, was that if you were put on trial as a Christian, would you be found guilty by a juror of your peers? Uh, Would you be able to? Would people be able to look at your life and be able to say, yes, Tim is a Christian, Tim is a child of God, and here are the ways that the world around me sees how I'm living those things out. Now, we've learned uh, throughout this lesson, you can fake people out in some ways, but one of the telltale signs of whether or not we are in the faith or not is how we are going to live out that faith in the world around us. And this is what John continually wants to teach us. Ten different times in this letter, he says, I want you to be able to know a particular thing. Know what true and right doctrine is and the right confession that we should have. Knowing that uh, uh, how to know that we are in the faith and loved by God is by loving one another. And he goes on over and over again, and he finishes up in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which is the key verse of this entire book, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Well, how are we to know? How are we to know what the verdict is when it comes to our relationship with God? Uh, is it just this sense that we get? Is, are we just uh, to just assume that we are believers? What John is going to do is he's going to give us four evidences Now, we have become enamored with the idea of evidence and the idea of investigation. In fact, uh, three of the number, uh, top seven uh, uh, most watched shows right now involve the forensic science. In fact, they've become so big and so um, uh, a part of our culture that uh, a a column that I was reading in the New York Times said that uh, the whole idea of how people do crimes has changed because of what they've learned at how police study the evidence to uh, get someone charged on a crime of whatnot or whatever it may be. It's an amazing thought that TV shows would actually be helping criminals try to get away with things, but that usually is the case. And so what happens is, is these forensic scientists are used to examine the evidence and then to prove an individual guilty or innocent based on the evidence they find. Today, John is that forensic investigator. He's the one who's looking around in our life and asking the question, are they guilty of being Christians? Are uh, are there things in their life that are evidence of what 
is seen in the life of Christ that is lived out in the life that lives in the light. And so we want to look at those evidences. And the first one I want to look at this morning is in our text. And so I would ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. This is what the Word of the Lord says to us. We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him, and He in God. And so we, now, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what it teaches us. Lord, many times it it challenges us in ways that we would rather not be challenged. And 1 John is no exception to that. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that today we would put ourselves under your magnifying glass, that we would not build uh, legalistic expectations or thoughts based on others' thoughts of religion, but according to your word, according to your spirit, that we would look to our lives and ask the deep and profound question, a question that seems to supersede every other question in our world, and that is, am I in you? And are you in me? Lord, we need to be assured of that. We need to know for certain whether or not we're in the faith. And Lord, I know there are some in this midst that uh, would quickly say, yes, I'm in the faith. But Lord, their actions and their life show no evidence of that. And so Lord, I pray through the examples that are given through your word, that those that have uh, seemingly been just dating you or just you know, involved in, in a quasi-relationship with you would today, once and for all, dedicate themselves to you and to, the, uh, to your working in their life so that they will bring you glory, honor, and praise through the life of obedience that they bring. Father, I pray that you'd speak through me and that my words would be your words so that your kingdom would be advanced and your name would be glorified in all that I say and do this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What's the first evidence that we need to have? Because as the evidence brings forth something, I hope that you'll be able to walk away uh, with a verdict. I had two people after the first service have two very distinct differences of of how they viewed the message. The first person said, I'm not sure about my faith. The more you talked about it, the more I really had to question whether or not I was in the faith. And I gave them some some words of counsel on what direction they needed to go in, and I told them that the very nature of them uh, being seized by that thought that they're not sure of their faith and, and, and are unsure as a result of some of the things that they see in their life are, are positive things because that's the Spirit of God moving in their life. And then I began to start saying, boy, did I, did I hit them over the head too hard? Did I, did I leave the congregation really having a, uh, a doubting of their faith instead of really testing it? And another individual came up right away afterwards and said, a couple years ago I would have been scared to death after a message, you know, because of the issues that I've dealt with and the struggles and some of the things that I've just not lived out in my life. But as God has been growing me, as He's been working me, it was a wonderful affirmation that, number one, my, my time uh, of maturity is not done yet. I've got much to attain to, but how I see how confident I am at, at where the Lord has brought me and how excited I am to the process. And so there's going to be a myriad of responses this morning, but let's look at the evidence, and then I want you as an individual to then move forward and ask yourself, what is the verdict? Are you in Christ 
or is there something wrong? Evidence number one that John gives is that we must look at the counselor. We must look at the counselor. In John chapter 4, verse 13, he starts with this. We know that we live in him. There's the assurance. We can know that we live in him because he has given us of his spirit. The counselor or the Holy Spirit is the one that is given at the moment that we trust Christ as our Savior. And so the first evidence as a believer that we must have in our lives is the ongoing anointing that the Holy Spirit brings. Uh, We cannot be in Christ without the work and the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. At the moment that we are saved, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit. You are given every opportunity to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, there should be an evidence that plays out in your life that it's not just you living, but it is the Holy Spirit that is helping lead and guide and, and move you in the direction that God has called you to. Now, what does that look like? How, how can we know whether or not we have the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing we have to understand, not from this text, but from what we know of the Holy Spirit, is that having the Holy Spirit, write this down in your outlines, having the Holy Spirit enables holiness and exposes sin. It enables holiness and it exposes sin for us as believers. And so the question that may come up is, how do I know whether or not I have the Holy Spirit? Well, are you pursuing holiness? In John chapter 15 and 16, Jesus is sitting with his uh, disciples on the day that he's going to be betrayed, and he articulates, because he's about to leave them, that he is going to send the Holy Spirit, this counselor, this comforter who is going to come. And this job of this counselor, this Holy Spirit that they had not met before and will not meet until the day of Pentecost when he pours out himself upon the disciples, is that he is going to expose sin and convict the world of sin and teach them what it means to be righteous and what righteousness looks like. And so when we look at the Holy Spirit and we look at his job description, the role that he plays in the life of us as believers, if the Holy Spirit is there, then the question is, do we see holiness in our life? Meaning, as an individual, are you pursuing holiness? Now, God has articulated to us in his word that we are to be holy because he is holy. Now, we cannot find any way, any source of that holiness apart from the person and work of God in heaven. There's no place we can go in this world that we can find holiness apart from God. And so the first way that we can know whether or not we are in the faith is whether the counselor, the Holy Spirit, is active in our lives. The first way we recognize that is, is there a pursuit of holiness? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for the Word of God to know? Because the only way we'll know whether we're going to pursue holiness or not is through God's Word. God's Word establishes the source and the substance of all that is holy. And so is there a hunger and thirst for righteousness and a study of His Word? Do you long to be involved in prayer as you pursue uh, your Father in heaven as He lays forth what it means to be holy? In your response to sin... Is there an exposure to sin? On the positive, do you pursue holiness? But on the negative side of things, uh, when you sin, is there this exposure, if you will, to sin? And this deep and profound regret and sadness that comes over you because you have now, because of sin, broken fellowship with your God. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is to do, to lead in holiness and to convict us of any unrighteousness or sin in our lives. And so the question is, do you see that going on in your life? Do you see those types of things taking place? Now, what I'm not articulating is that at all times we're going to sense the Holy Spirit as actively as we do at another time in our life. The Bible says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can even quench the Holy Spirit at times as a believer. And that happens as we break fellowship with our God in sin. And instead of dealing with sin, we continue to allow that sin to reign in our lives instead of dealing with it as it should. But I will assure you of this, that if we live in that state of sin 
for any period of time, I can assure you, just as a good father would, that our God in heaven will discipline us, and he will use the Holy Spirit uh, to deal with that. One of the uh, best examples of that, I didn't share this in the first service, but I thought of it after, uh, in between the services, we were uh, meeting, the elders were meeting with a man uh, who allowed uh, some years back uh, a sin in his life. And never getting a a control of that sin, it moved on and it moved on and it moved on to the point that this sin has, has ruined his life in many, many ways. And what he began to say was, I never thought that I would get caught in my sin, that nobody would ever find out about my sin. And he said, the last thing I was worried about was the Holy Spirit. And what happened was, is this man came clean with uh, uh, the issues in his life that he was struggling with, and what it was was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He was the one that ratted himself out. It didn't take anybody else. And he said, you know what I learned was that I was a believer. And I knew I was a believer back then, but I was unwilling to give up this sin. And it took years, but the Lord said, you know what? I'm going to use my spirit to convict you. And he was brought to great depths in his life that he finally just started to confess sin. And then he spent some time with a couple of our elders and said, you know what? I need to talk to you guys about this situation that nobody else knows about. Because until I deal with this, I'm going mad because I haven't dealt with it. And so he does. The Holy Spirit will prove himself faithful even when we're not. Do you see a pursuit of holiness in your life? Not just in religion, but in holiness. I liken it to a marriage relationship. I can be a good husband because that's what good husbands are supposed to do. But do I see a genuine desire to love my wife? I do. There's something about uh, my wife, and she's in our audience this morning, so I don't want to embarrass her too much, but there's something that really just, in, it just is an incredible attraction to me, not just in a physical way, but in everything of who she is. I love being with her. The Holy Spirit's going to do that in your life. What the Holy Spirit is going to do, because he lives inside of you, is create this magnetism to your Father in heaven. And he's going to continue to, to promote in your life and push in your life the desire to be closer to your Father in heaven. And so the question is, do you see that happening in your life? And when that isn't a response, is the Holy Spirit convicting as he says that he would. Now notice the second thing we need to understand about the Holy Spirit and his involvement in our life. It doesn't just involve uh, the sense of feelings, but it's more about fruit. Write that down. Experiencing the Spirit is more about fruit than feelings. And what I mean by that is when you trusted Christ as your Savior, there's a good chance that while emotions may have been running high, there wasn't any kind of warm and fuzzy feeling that came into your midst, if you will, as you experienced the Holy Spirit for the first time. And a lot of people are disappointed in that, that they say, you know what, I, I trusted Christ as my Savior, I've, I've prayed a prayer of thanksgiving and, and repentance for the work of Christ in my life. But shouldn't I feel different? Shouldn't there be some different things happening in my life? And, and wouldn't it be great if the Holy Spirit, every time that the Holy Spirit entered into somebody, that he would just put a tattoo somewhere, you know, if you don't like tattoos, some sort of marking, if you will, that says that you're in the faith? Well, he does, but it's not how we would see it. It's not how we would maybe, per se, desire it. Because I know that, man, there would be great times for me to know and be assured if someone just came and said, Tim, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, now go on with your life. But God doesn't do that. What God does is he gives us his Holy Spirit, and it's not so much about how we feel, but it's about the fruit that are lived out. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians for a moment. To the book of Galatians. If you're in 1 John, go to your left a couple books into the small book of Galatians. And Galatians chapter 5 gives two types of fruit that we can look at. Because what we're going to be told by uh, the Apostle Paul is that as you evaluate your life and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're either going to see his fruit or the fruit that you pursue of your own. Notice what he says in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, verses uh, 19 uh, through 21. This is what he says. The acts, or if, if you don't mind, I'll add the word, the fruit of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, I warned you as I did before that, the, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that define you this morning? Not all of them. You know, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think that uh, one individual would, would have all of these uh, in their lives, but maybe. It doesn't say they can't. But are some of those things a part of your life? Are those some of the fruits that are being uh, seen as you live out your life? The issues of immorality, impurity, debauchery? Is there uh, hatred or discord or jealousy? Are those the fruits that you see in your life? Or do you see the fruit, the production that the Holy Spirit brings? Notice what Paul says after that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He goes on in verse 24, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So my question for you this morning, and the question that we need to examine, as every Christian should, is which one defines me? Is it the passions and the selfish ambitions of the flesh and the sinful nature? Or is it the fruit of the Spirit? Now again, there are going to be times where we find ourselves living on, on both sides of the fence. That sometimes we'll at one moment be showing great love and self-control in one aspect and then and find ourselves in, in terrible immorality. David is a wonderful example of that. A man after God's own heart who was faithful in many ways, who was upright in many ways, who was a guy that was kind and, and patient and peace-loving, who was full of goodness and gentleness and, and even self-control. If you remember, he has Saul, the king before him, uh, pursuing him. And on a couple different occasions, he has the opportunity to end Saul's life, but he doesn't. That's self-control. That's peace. That's goodness. Because he recognized that, that was still, Saul was still God's anointed. But what happens on that fateful night when he's standing on the roof overlooking Israel? Well, what happens is, is that instead of producing fruit of the Spirit, he began to produce fruits of the flesh. And the question that we have as believers is, is there more production of fruit going on that is of the Spirit or that of the flesh? David's a great example of a man who was almost all the time led by the Spirit, but who at a couple different times was led by the flesh. And we need to look at our lives and ask the question, how much fruit are we producing on each side? I will tell you that every true believer of God will be able to see more production of spiritual fruit than that on the other side. Oh, there will be a war. But I believe that because of the perseverance of the saints that God uh, gives us as believers, that he will, persevere so that, uh, he will persevere in us so that we will produce for him. And so the question is, are you seeing that production, the working of the Spirit in your life? It's not just about feelings, but it involves fruit. Now notice the second thing that then he leads us to. The second evidence moves from the Spirit to our confession. Notice the text again in 1 John chapter 4. He goes on and he says he's, been, he's given us the Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. The second evidence that we have of whether or not we're in the faith, John says, is the confession that you have. Your understanding of who God is and who Christ is in the world. And so there's an acknowledgement, there's an understanding that to be in the faith, we must believe the right things. We must have the right confession. But, but what does that involve? I love the passage in Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 uh, through 17. Of course, Jesus is spending time with his disciples in Matthew 16, and he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And some of the disciples respond and they say, uh, some believe you're Elijah, others believe you're John the Baptist. But then Jesus asks the question a second time. And he says, who do you say that I am? 
One thing that we must remember is Jesus will always come back to us. It doesn't matter what others believe around us. And so young people, uh, especially, or spouses who find themselves uh, with one who is on on fire for the Lord, don't think that Jesus is going to say, oh, you're with them, it's okay. For a long time, growing up in a very, uh, very devout and Christian family, I believed that the reason why I was going to go to heaven and the reason why God was going to be good to me was because my parents were good to him. And I began to think that I would just kind of hang on the shirt tails of my mom and dad, that I would follow them. I would, I would do what they're doing, and I wouldn't be as involved as they are, and, and I would have my fun. But I had mom and dad. They were always going to be faithful, and then God was going to give kind of a family discount into the kingdom. But what I learn about this is that it doesn't matter what other people say about God. My mom and dad had a wonderful confession about God. But Jesus, just as he did with his disciples, asked me the question, but who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what mom and dad says. It doesn't matter what your spouse says. It doesn't matter what your pastor says. It matters what you say about God. Now, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Bingo, you got it. The right answer. I was telling the first service, had it been me, if I was Peter, I would have turned around and did the nanan and a boo-boo. I got the right answer. You didn't. Look how great I am. Probably would have done a little dance. I did the dance for the first service. I won't do it for you. And and I would have responded in, in just a huge way. Man, I got it. I figured it out. But the thing that Jesus says is something that we need to be reminded of. Because with knowledge, the Bible says, comes arrogance. And so we can say, we've got the right answer. We've figured it out. I've got the right confession. And they don't have it like we've got it. The Mormon church down the street, they don't have the right confession, but we do. Look how great and wonderful we are and how uh, lost they are. Well, what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't come up with this on your own, but my Father in heaven has revealed it so that you would be able to say that. The thing that we need to understand is that the Spirit's work in our life proves that we will come up with the right confession. And what I mean by that is that the Spirit's job is to lead us in all truth. That's not just truth when it comes to, per se, personal holiness, but it comes to personal beliefs and understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that we cannot be led astray at times uh, into wrong teaching and wrong things. But again, the Spirit will always bring back that which is own to understand and know what right understanding and right teaching is all about. And so our confession, as we look at it, needs to involve a couple things that John has articulated. What should we be confessing? What has the Spirit revealed to us, not only through His inner workings in our life, but through His Word? Notice what He says. This is what we need to acknowledge, that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Now notice something for a moment. There are a couple of things that we see that need to be a part of our confession. Number one, as we confess all that we understand and know about Christ, it must always involve our lost standing before God. Our lost standing before God. Now you say, where do you find that in the text? I find it in the text where it says that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If the world isn't lost, there's no need of a Savior. And so the first thing that we must understand as people is we are lost in our trespasses and sin. That we, without God, will be able to do nothing. And that nothing means that we will inevitably find ourselves on the way to hell. The Bible makes it clear that without Christ, uh, there's hell. With Christ, there's a place called heaven. We cannot get there on our own. We were not revealed that, but it is by the Spirit that reveals our lost nature before God. You cannot have salvation. Even if you understand all about Jesus, you're missing something on Jesus if you don't recognize your lost nature and your lost place before God. We have to recognize that this confession must be a confession that we are sinners in need of grace. That apart of God coming and intervening in our lives, we will always be lost. Notice the second thing that he brings out. He brings up our Lord and Savior. 
He talks about that we must acknowledge Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want you to understand that a true and real confession that is evidence of the Spirit's working in our life is one that is centered on Jesus Christ. Not that has Jesus Christ a part of it. See, uh, what the spirit of the Antichrist in our world today is doing is they're learning that it's not popular to say that Jesus is nothing. And so what they will say, and this is espoused by uh, especially Oprah, is that she'll say, well, Jesus is one way to the great light, to the great source of enlightenment, and that he's our great moral example Well, that heresy is as old as uh, the first century days because what we need to understand is it isn't Jesus plus something else. It's not Jesus plus you that equals relationship with God. It's not Jesus and Buddha that equals relationship with God. It's not Jesus plus any other things because any time you add Jesus, you have lost Jesus. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. He is the one mediator between God and man. You get to God through Jesus Christ. It must be centered on him, but it must be centered on two thoughts. First of all, it must be centered on the thought that because you're lost, you need a Savior. And our confession must always uh, respond and must always have, let me rephrase that, must always have the response that the reason why we believe in Jesus is because he is the only Savior for our sins. No one else can pay for the penalty of your sin and the penalty of death in your life, except for Jesus Christ. And so he's your Savior. He's the only one that can come and deal once and for all with the issue that plagues us the most, which is sin. But notice, we many times as evangelicals stop there and say, yes, Jesus is my Savior. But notice what he says. He doesn't just say he's the Savior of the world, but notice in verse 14, or 15, he says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of of God. He's the son that would save, but he is also the son who rules. Jesus Christ is not just our Savior, my friends. He's our Lord. And we are called to live as our Lord says, to do as our Lord tells us to do. And so when our Lord tells us to obey, we are called to obey. When he tells us to flee from sin, we should be compelled to flee from sin. Jesus is not the one who just takes care of the fire insurance for hell, but he is the one that produces in us a life that looks totally different than the way we used to live. And it means saying no to ungodliness and worldly lust and pursuing Christ first and foremost in all that we say, in all that we do. He becomes our example and the one who leads by example on how a life of holiness should be in Uh, should look like. Now notice the next thing that he says in our confession, and that is that it should involve the love that God shows, verse 16. And so we know, or that word know literally in the Greek means we've experienced and we rely, meaning we put our hope, we trust on the love that God has for us. We know that we're lost, And we know Christ has given us his uh, son to be our savior. And we know that he has called us to be, he's called uh, his son to be our Lord, to be the one who reigns supreme in our lives. But the motivation for all of those things, the whole reason for the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in verse 16, because of the love God has for us. This is not out of duty. God doesn't say, well, that's what God's do. What gods do is they go and help out the people that they created. No, God was motivated. The Father has lavished, John tells us earlier in the book, that he's lavished his love upon us because he has made us his children, and that's what we are. And so this whole understanding of of our confession is a confession of a son to a father. It's a confession that though we fail as children, we recognize that even though in our lost standing we can do nothing apart from Christ and that God sent his son to be our savior and our Lord, it is our response now out of uh, gratitude for all that Christ has done for us to live as sons and daughters of God because we love our father and because our father has loved us. We don't love God, but we love God because he first loved us, which we're going to learn about here in just a moment. But it's this confession that leads to something. Now, understand in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, 
we can claim that we have a confession. We can claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness. And he says that we lie and do not live by the truth. You may be able to amen that we have a lost standing. You may be able to uh, amen that Jesus Christ should be our Savior and Lord. And you can amen that that is lived out in the love that God has shown us. But unless that confession leads to conduct, my friends, then it's not a real faith. The Bible says that even the demons believe, and they shudder at the fact. But the question is, have they changed the way they believe, or the way they live based on how they believe? And of course, the answer is no. And so we have to ask the question, does the gospel of Jesus Christ radically change the way I look at my life? Does because of my lost understanding of who I was before Christ, Does my understanding of what Jesus Christ did and all that he endured to be my Savior change the way I look at life? Does the way that the Lord leads and guides as my Lord and one who reigns supreme in my life cause me to pause and seek wisdom and guidance from him? Does God's loving response lead me then to respond in love to the world around me? The question is, does all that happen for you? As you look at what you believe in Christ, does it reflect itself in the way that you live? Now, it leads to number third, the third point there, and that is the third piece of evidence, and that is confidence. Notice what the text says. It says, uh, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. It's in this way, this way of love, that love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The next evidence that we have is confidence. And the confidence that John talks about are two different types of confidence. In one aspect, he talks twice about the confidence that we have as believers that if we are living according to his will and we ask according to his will, we can be confident that we will get all that we have asked in prayer. That's not the confidence that he's talking about here, but this is connected to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, where it's connected to the confidence that we have before the judgment of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you this question. This morning, after a week that you've had, how confident are you meeting Jesus Christ face to face? I will tell you, one of the things that I love most about John Wesley is is the following statement, that he wanted to make sure that at all times and in all ways, he was always being found serving the Lord. And the question was, why, John, do you live that way? And his response was, because I never want the Lord to come back and not find his servant working. And that's kind of the feeling that I get. I don't want to be caught, if you will, red-handed, that the last thing that I'm a part of doing, or the, the, the life that I am found to be living, that I'm not ready for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you say, Tim, that, that doesn't sound all that biblical. Where do you get that? Well, think about the parable, especially the parable of the ten virgins who are uh, told to keep oil in their lamps waiting for the coming of their bridegroom. And some of them run out because they're busy uh, using their oil for a lot of things that weren't important and not ready for the coming uh, of their Lord and Savior, the bridegroom who was to come. I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. But to be able to be ready and prepared for that means two things that John uh, brings forth in this. The first thing is, is we need to understand, again, not just our law standing, but our standing before God. Write that down. Our standing before God. We can only have confidence, which is translated boldness um, from the Greek word there. We can have boldness when we understand our standing as believers. That once we have trusted Christ as our Savior, and once we have asked for forgiveness of our sins and for the blood of Jesus Christ to uh, cover the sins that we have committed, it is then that we can have confidence to stand before God. Because that we are justified, the Bible says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Asking for help in our time of need, the book of Hebrews says. It is because we know who we are. Now, I can tell you that my boys have confidence to ask me all types of things. Even when I'm incredibly busy, my children will come up and will be confident, bold enough to ask me the dumbest question on the face of the earth. 
There could be every, you know, it could be, I could be preaching and my children will come up and, Dad, can I go get a drink of water? Yes, you can go get a drink. They're confident. They're bold. Why? Because they know their relationship with their dad. They know that they, I'm accessible. Sometimes I think they think I'm too accessible. They think they can come up at any time. And that's good in a lot of ways. I never want my children to think that they, they can't be accessible to their father. But they're bold. They're confident in that. Now you put one of your other children to come and ask a question, and you may have to push them to come and talk with me. You may have to help guide them or even start the sentence. And I know that's how my children would be with many of you. Why? Because there is not confidence. There is not this boldness. Because there is not a relationship. What God wants us to have, and the reason why he uses 1 John, is he wants to give his children confidence. He wants to give his children boldness. He wants his children to know that they are his, that they can approach him at any times, and they can stand before him, not shrinking back in fear, but in confidence, not on what they have done, but what their daddy has done for them. Do you have that confidence this morning in your standing, that I can stand before Almighty God just as I am, and that my Father in heaven will accept me, that he loves me, that he desires the best for me? Or do you shrink back? I know there have been many a times in my life, especially when I was younger, where because of my relationship or lack thereof, that I feared the coming of Christ. I remember as a young man I saw, and it, it was kind of funny, we watched as a church the Thief in the Night movie. You know, I never got to watch PG movies as a young kid, but when it happened at church, you know, we got to see heads roll and all that. It was biblical, so you got to see it. And I remember being freaked out. You know, for a couple of weeks there, I thought I was the Antichrist, and there were some in the church that would have agreed with me. And I wasn't very confident. Number one, because I didn't know my God as well as I needed to. And number two, my life wasn't where it needed to be. I know my children aren't very confident when mom says, just wait, your father's going to be home soon, and they're not getting a good report. There's no confidence that dad is home. But when all is well and obedience is there, the best days, and dads, you know this when you come home, moms, you do as well, is when the door opens up and you hear the words, daddy's home, and there's excitement and there's a child running to you with open arms. Are you that child this morning with open arms looking forward to the day that he will come? Or are you one who shrinks back in fear? The reason why there's fear, John tells us, is the following. He says that it has to do with punishment. God isn't going to punish us. God disciplines us. He does it because he loves us. But if you're afraid that God is going to punish you, then something's wrong. Something is wrong. There's a disconnect. And we must ask the question, why is that fear there? Because we have not seen that perfect love, which is the love that only God can bring in us. This agape love that comes from God himself, and he gives to his children. He tells us how this love is done. He says in verse 9, he loved us. we love him because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us. And so we must understand that this confidence involves a standing. Notice the next thing. It involves our sanctification. It involves our sanctification. When we take God on his word, that he's going to come back and that he is going to judge, then it should be our desire to live in such a way that we'll be ready for that coming. Let me apply this third point. My fourth point is short, so don't lose track here. But I want you to turn to 2 Timothy very quickly. This is important for us. Especially as evangelicals, we hold to uh, pre-trib theology, and we just want to uh, just get out of here. And yet we see that we've got a job to do uh, as, as we wait upon the coming of the Lord. Notice what uh, uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says the following, his life is about done, and he's looking back and he's speaking to a young man, Timothy, who's new into the ministry, and he says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me, talk about boldness, confidence, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, 
the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And there's this pause, and he says, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you long for the appearing of God? Because if you do, if you say, yes, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, then it's not just in that confession, but it leads to our conduct, my friends. Because notice what he did. He longed for that appearing, and he fought the good fight. He longed for that appearing, and he poured himself out into the ministry and the life that Christ had called him to in every way that he was like a drink offering. He poured himself out because he longed for the appearing, that he fought the good fight, that he not only ran the race, but he finished the race. He longed for that appearing, that he kept the faith, and he did it amidst all kinds of trials and all kinds of struggles. He did all of that because he longed for the appearing of his Savior and Lord. Oh, we in our churches are so quick to say we long for Christ's coming, but it doesn't change the way we live. Paul, it did. And because of that, because of the way he viewed his life of sanctification, which literally means just being set apart to be more like Christ, he said, because I know Jesus is coming back and I have the right doctrine, then my deeds need to change and I need to live differently. Do you have confidence this morning that if today was the day that Christ came back, that you'd be able to stand boldly, not only because of your standing that you won't stand before Christ at the uh, great white throne judgment, that which is for unbelievers, but because you're a Christian, you'll stand before the Bema seat. But are you confident in that? That you'll be able to stand before Christ and give an account of what you've done and how you and I have lived and be able to stand confidently saying that I know that at the end of my days, my Savior who has been faithful and true will see a faithful and true disciple who will utter the words to you and I, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you have that confidence this morning? It means changing the way we live. It means not viewing the world as John did when he said in 1 John 2, 15 through 17 that those in the world pursue the lust of the flesh, the boasting of the mouth, and the cravings of the sinful nature. Are you so busy pursuing those things, the things of this world, that Christ coming back is a second thought? Well, all of this leads to the fourth and final evidence, and that is our choices. Our choices. What do your choices say about you this morning? If we were to follow you as a group of individuals, or you were to follow me, what might they have seen this last week? Would they have seen a life that is evidenced in following Christ? Would they see that in the words that you spoke, or the words I spoke? Would they see it in my thought life? Would they see it in the way I treat others? Would they see it in uh, the response uh, to my relationship with God and the pursuit of God this week? Or would you be disappointed? Would you be saddened by what you see your fellow Christians in? What John finishes up with in 1 John four nineteen through 21 is a twofold understanding about our choices. Our choices are impacted by how much we love God and how much we love others. And if we get that down, we will recognize much, a ton of what the Christian faith is about. Because it can be summed up, the Scripture says, in two things, loving God and loving others. And so one of the greatest evidences of the Christian life is the following. How much do you love God? Really, don't, don't look at the people around you. How much do you love God? Is there a love relationship? He's lavished his love upon you. He's poured out uh, his wrath on his son so that you may be redeemed. And the question is, what is your response to that? Do you love other things in this world more than God? How is it then seen in the world around us? I love what John says, and it's something we don't think about. I can love God, a lot of people will say. It's easy to love. But notice what he says as he finishes out this message. He says here, 
For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you know that it's easier to love the world that you see, the people around you, than it is to love God? And we as Christians many times say, well, it's easy to love God, but it's hard to love those other unlovable people. And yet what John is saying is that our choices will then lead us, as we love God, to love others. I want you to close your Bibles, and I want you to bow your head, and I want you to ask some questions this morning. Is there evidence that says you love your God? Not just in your confession that you, that's what you know, but as you look at your life, what evidence is there that you love God? What are the things in your life that, 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 that are produced because of this love that you have for God? Is it seen in the first place that it should be in the love of others? And the sacrificing for others? Because we can't just say we love God and hate our brother because we're a liar, the Scripture says. What evidence do you have this morning that if you were on trial, that you would use against those that accuse you that you are in the faith. Can they see it in the choices you make? Can they see it in the confidence that you have that you will be able to stand before your God in heaven? Do they see it in the Spirit's work in your life? For some this morning, there's some real question. I know there was a question in my own mind, not that I'm not assured of my faith, but boy, I have a great assurance, and, and yet there's a, some things in my life that need to change. And I love what, what John says in First John 4.17. As you just continue to examine your heart, be reminded of this. It is in this way love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence because in this world we are like him. Because perfect love drives out fear. The great thing about the walk of Jesus Christ as you examine your heart is that God's not done with you yet. And for as long as you have breath, for as long as you're living this life, then today is the day of salvation. And you can be matured and you can be changed to become more like Him. But what it means is that you must learn what it means to love God and to know what it means to be loved by God. And so in this summer before us, as the schedules change, I want you to seek out in the quietness of your heart to say, Lord, I, I want to change. Lord, I want to be like your son. Lord, I want to do what your word says. Lord, I want that spirit that lives inside of me to bear witness to my walk with you. So that, Lord, I may be assured and confident at your coming. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for all that it's taught me this week. And Lord, I thank you that we can know. I thank you for the book of 1 John, that we can have assurance. But Lord, I pray that our assurance would not be found on our own merits or our own thoughts, but they would rely solely on the love that you have for us and the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be able to be sure of the hope that we have, and that we'd be able to share with others the reason for our hope, so that they may know you, and they may see you as they see the life of love that we live out to the world around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.